when we step in and we do those three things, usually that can immediately result in a several million dollar increase in the value of the building. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello and welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Matt Jones, stepping in for Todd Dexheimer today. And today we have Josh Cantwell joining us. And to give you an idea about Josh, he is the CEO of Freeland Ventures. He currently manages over $40 million in private money, which is deployed into multifamily real estate and apartments. He has been involved in over a thousand wholesale, rehab, rental, foreclosure, and apartment transactions, and currently holds a portfolio of over 3,000 cash flowing apartments. He is the founder and CEO of a variety of successful businesses, including Freeland Ventures and Strategic Real Estate Coach. Well, uh, welcome, Josh. And if you could mind starting by telling us a little bit more about your your experience and your background. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Matt. I appreciate it. I had Todd on my show not that long ago, so we had a great rapport. I understand he's tied up today, which is great. Um, but no, listen, like I think like a lot of people, I fell in love with real estate. I was a financial advisor actually coming out of college, right? So 1997, I got my Series 6, 63, 65 life and health licenses. I was working with clients that were three times my age. I was 22, 24, 25 years old. They were 60, 70, 80 years old. And I realized, Matt, that most of them had a significant portion of their wealth in real estate. They didn't have it in the stock market, even though I was managing their portfolio. So I took notice. I saw they owned apartments, they owned rental properties, they owned strip centers and leased them out. Um, and so I took notice. I started going to events and boot camps and things like that. And we, are, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. So about three years before the foreclosure crisis of 2008-9-10, there was already a foreclosure crisis in Cleveland because there were 10 publicly traded companies that either consolidated or went out of business or went bankrupt. So there were all these houses. There was a vast supply of houses, not enough people to buy them, and a lot of people in foreclosure. So when I started investing in Resi, I immediately gravitated toward foreclosures and short sales and things like that. We became an industry expert. We held massive live events. We we were doing hundreds of transactions a year. Uh, and then I got sick with pancreatic cancer in 2011. And my whole business world was turned upside down. I, I didn't work for nine months. Uh, and when I came out of that surgery, I realized I had made a lot of mistakes, which we can talk about on the show today. But um, one of the biggest mistakes is I was not investing for cash flow. I was I was in the business that had a a, a big income from the business, but the business only worked when everybody showed up and worked the business. I didn't have any passive investments that produced cash flow. So I fell in love with that. I, I learned my lesson. I got into a fund that produced cash flow and then fell into apartments about five, six years ago. And that now is our is our baby. And that's where we spend all of our time. And I'm not, uh, Matt, I'm not a passive owner operator. I am on site at my buildings weekly. Um, I manage the crap out of my property managers, which they don't really like, but it works for me. And we do a lot of heavy construction at our buildings. And so that's ultimately the lesson I think that I've learned along the way is, is investing for cash flow. It took me a long time to get where I'm at today. Uh, but I feel like I finally got it right. So that's a little bit more about where I came from. 
Well, it's great. You're using that experience from like the wholesale and rehabs of, uh, you know, smaller units and, uh, you know, applying that to the larger, you know, scale. Uh, essentially, you're you're creating cash flow, but you're also forcing appreciation at the same time. So you're getting kind of a double dip, uh, the best of both Absolutely. worlds. Absolutely. You know, if you invested in a bond, like I was, a, I was a financial advisor, so I sold mutual funds and bonds and, and all this kind of things, annuities. If you invest in a bond historically that would produce, let's say, a five or a five and a half percent return on a corporate bond, you buy it and that's all you that's all you get, right? That five, five and a half percent return. When you invest in real estate, commercial real estate, or even resi, you know, uh portfolios, you can get that same kind of cash on cash return. Let's call it a six cap, a six percent return, which is which is relatively low. But let's say you get a six or an eight percent return. What they don't tell you in that real estate portfolio is that you can also, number one, you can leverage the portfolio. So you put less of your cash into it and you borrow some of the money. So your return actually goes up. Number two, on, on top of the return, six, seven, eight percent cash on cash return from the cash flow, you also have, as you mentioned, Matt, the forced appreciation. Now you have the equity. So 10 years from now, if I sell the bond, I've only got my principal back right? The bond's not really going to go up in value. The real estate could substantially go up in value. So that's going to you know, really jack up my, my rate of return. The other thing is that if you're a skilled investor, you can find yield or discrepancies in the marketplace where you can buy deals at a discount that by just doing some small light value add, you could immediately increase the value of the real estate. You can't do that with a bond, right? So there's all these things that you could do with real estate that if I'm an active investor or a passive investor, I'm, I'm going to want to add real estate to my portfolio because of these different, these different places where I can get yield or I can find arbitrage. Those are big things that allow me to force those values up and increase the returns for us and for all of our investors as well. And what are some of your favorite ways to add value into your real estate? Uh, well, look, man, the first thing I like to do, Matt, is I like to find an owner who, you know, is his own buildings for 20, 30, 40 years. And the guy's already made his money. Okay. This is our, we buy a lot of 1960s, 70s, 80s, vintage apartments. And in the Cleveland, Ohio area specifically, there's a lot of owners that have owned their buildings for a long time. So they've made their money. They have a very low basis. They have very low debt. And they also don't have a lot of motivation to push the rent. Okay. So we go in, we buy these buildings. They haven't been improved for maybe 10, 15 years. But the immediate easy one is to find these owners that just don't have the motivation that I have or you have, Matt, and bump the rent, right? Because rents have gone up in the last three years with COVID, with this shortage of, of, of the shortage of affordable housing. I can go in and immediately today on renewals be bumping rents by a hundred to $300. Now, did I add any value there? No, absolutely not. <laughs> but I added value to our investors. I added value to our bottom line. I added value to the, the actual value of the real estate. So the first thing I, I like to do is look at, okay, where should the rents be versus where are they at takeover? That's an, that's an immediate win. Second thing, Matt, is we always improve the commons within 60 to 90 days. So our strategy, I've done this 18 times now, I've done 18 apartment syndications. The first thing that we do is improve the commons. Why? Because that's what everybody sees. 
So they could live in their unit. Let's say it's a 900 square foot apartment and they could trash it. It could be a total hellhole. It could be, they could have cockroaches and bugs or they could, it could be the Taj Mahal. It could be something that they really take care of. But what nobody sees inside the unit, right? But what does everybody see? They see that that there's dingy lighting in the comments. So we upgraded to all LEDs. They see that the carpets may be a little outdated or maybe it's just an old, maybe 10, 15 years old as far as the color scheme. We update that with brand new commercial grade uh, carpets with a great design in it. And of course, we paint the commons immediately. We also go in and make sure that all the security doors, people that live on apartment buildings of ours, and we have almost 8,000 people that live on our apartment complexes, they want to make sure that they're safe and secure. And they're willing to pay a little bit more if all the security doors work, the key fobs work, the keys work, and the windows are in good shape. So all of that is an immediate win that we don't even have to disrupt a resident. We don't have to have to go into their unit. We can take care of all the commons. That's another immediate win that we can. And now we can justify the rent increase that I mentioned at the beginning. We can really justify the rent increase by taking care of the commons. Another value added easy way is to make sure that we're onboarding a, a resident portal. You'd be surprised how many properties we buy where people are still paying manually with checks and money orders and literally cash they walk into the management office. It's crazy in today's day and age that people are not using some sort of uh, management portal, payment portal, and, and work order portal. When we step in, we do those three things. Usually that can immediately result in a several million dollar increase in the value of the building. And we can knock that stuff out within 90 days. Yeah, excellent. And another way I like to add value, uh, you know, from day one is to reduce the expenses as well, you know, renegotiate contracts, you mentioned installing LED lighting, reducing uh, the utilities costs, if there's a, you know, plumbing leak, you can fix that right away, right. That, that sort of stuff, low flow toilets, anything that's going to reduce our energy costs, we do so low flow toilets, low flow shower heads, we do all that stuff right away, LED lights, for sure, mowing faucets, anything that's going to stop leaks, like water, is an investor's enemy, right? Like that's the, the biggest enemy I have is water, uh, leaks, plumbing leaks, roof leaks, water. Uh, so anything we can do to get rid of that. As a matter of fact, I, we had an owner meeting this morning with one of our property managers and this one property that we've owned now for about 17 months um, used to get almost 125 to 150 work orders per month. And most of them were water related and we track our KPIs. And one of the kind of the, the, the big days is the first 10 days of the month. And then my team reports in on the 12th of the month, how much money we collected, but also how many vacancies we have, how many kickouts we have evictions, but also how many work orders did we get in the first 10 days of the month? That same property that used to get 125 to 150 a month only had three work orders in the first 10 days of this month. Because again, we went after the water, water conservation, the toilets, the shower heads, the, the faucets, um, and then of course all the LED lighting. So we've reduced our energy cost. We've added value there, uh, but also we've reduced expenses because our maintenance tickets are so low now. So those are all big ones for sure. Awesome. And so throughout these eighteen syndications, uh, what has been your role? So I'm the CEO. Um, founded the company. Uh, we started out doing a lot of joint ventures because we had a private equity fund and our investors were 
uh, interested primarily in just writing checks and being limited partners. So I partnered up with my friend, Jack Patrick, um, and a few other investors that were already doing apartment syndications. We JV'd on those. Uh, so I helped sponsor the loan and raise the equity. Um, and Jack was more of the operator. Uh, over time, we've become the owner, operator, chief, cook and chef, cook and bottle washer, whatever you want to call it. Um, and today, my role, we have, I have two partners. I'm the CEO and majority owner. And I focus on the financials, the underwriting, acquisitions. I look at pro formas all the time where we're at relative to pro forma. And I focus on raising all of our capital, all of our investor relations. My, my partner, Glenn, he also is a loan sponsor. He helps raise some of the equity because uh, he's got some relationships with a few of our investors. But his swim lane is primarily the construction and value add of the CapEx. And then Tyler, my other partner, uh, again, is sponsoring loans. Uh, doesn't really raise money, but he's primarily focused on acquisitions. And he's focused on asset management. So he oversees all of our property managers. So we've broken down those three tasks into three completely separate swim lanes. We all have separate guardrails and we, we, we help each other. But each of us knows that that's our responsibility. So I actually have a deal closing. Today's Wednesday. It's closing Friday. Uh, we're buying a six and a half million dollar property. Had to raise about two million bucks. Um, I raised all that and was able to raise it in about sixty minutes nice, because nice. of the relationships that I have with investors. Very good. And then, do you overraise? Like, do you have a waiting list as well? Oh yeah, no doubt. Uh, we got really good at this, Matt, over the years. Like this is, I, I love this. I'm like, I geek out on raising money. So we have a really big digital marketing presence. Uh, we do 506B and 506C, depending on the, the, the what we're doing. But I've got relationships now with investors that go back over 10 years. So we do a lot of 506B because we have longstanding relationships with people. Um, but when I sell a deal, okay, or when I do a deal, this is going to peel back the onion a little bit. If I'm raising $5 million, I'll get the whole investor presentation ready and I'll set a date of when I'm going to do a webinar. And then for about 30 days leading up to the webinar, I'll call some of my strategic relationships and some of my newer investors. I'll make sure I have relationships with them. And then I'll show them the deal one-on-one -on, -one on like a Zoom call. And I'll get those pre-raised, those soft commitments so that when I go into the webinar for the $5 million raise, I've already got 2 million raise or two and a half of it soft committed. So then there becomes a feeding frenzy for the other two to 3 million bucks. And we always over raise. Matter of fact, on this, this deal, we needed uh, 2 million actually got commitments for 7 million and had to turn a bunch of people away. And we're took that other 5 million bucks. And I've, I've promised those people that we'll go find them another deal. Yeah. And it's nice because then you've already, you know, got a jump start on that next deal. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. Big, big head start. I actually got some stuff that's cooking down in the Columbus, Ohio market, which is about an hour and a half to two hours from where I'm at. And uh, we're really bullish on Ohio, especially with the Intel, uh, the chip factory going in and a lot of the Google stuff and Facebook stuff and the data centers that are going into Columbus and Cincinnati. And so I just went to look at five properties in Columbus and Cincinnati last week. We're going to offer on at least three of those. Um, the other two are kind of too small for us, but we're going to offer on at least three of those and hopefully get one or two. And, um, and, uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll deploy that 5 million extra, that 5 million extra pretty fast. Excellent. 
And uh, what are some tips that you can give people for analyzing deals right now in today's market? You know, I, I don't know if the recession is coming or, or whatnot, but uh, it, you know, it can be tricky. It seems like the market's starting to soften up. So, yeah. uh, how, you know, what are those tips for analyzing deals? So, so things are definitely different. I would argue that we're not in a recession. I know that the the, the retraction of GDP growth indicates the typical definition is two quarters as a recession. But when you look at uh, job growth, and we've added over 800,000 jobs in the last two months. Uh, unemployment is still 3.6%. Uh, income growth is up. Um, you know, uh, the retail expenses and, and re core sales, retail core sales is way up. Uh, people are returning back to the office. Everyone's back in schools. We are not in a recession other than the typical definition of a recession, which is two quarters of negative GDP. What I like in that too, Matt, is that uh, everyone went and bought like everything they could uh, over the last couple of maybe year because of the supply chain problems and everybody's loaded up on supplies. If you look at construction companies, they're, they're, they're going and using self-storage facilities to overbuy material and shove everything into these Connex boxes and shove everything into self-storage facilities and they've overbought. And now they don't need, there's still supply chain problems, but they don't need to go buy everything they can. So you're actually seeing a reduction in the cost of lumber, a reduction in fuel, a reduction in the cost of steel, a reduction in the cost of concrete. All this stuff is going down. And what I liken it to is you you had a store, imagine a store, let's say you owned a convenience store and it had all different kinds of stuff, bread, ketchup, Gatorade, beer, whatever. And everybody ran in and bought it. And the store looked like it made a huge profit, but now it had almost nothing on its shelves. That's what's happened to the U.S. economy. Everybody went and bought everything. You know, corporate profits are through the roof. Everybody's employed. There's lots of money, but the supply chain is still an issue. So there's less inventory on the shelves. And so the manufacturers are trying to catch up with all the demand. So the GDP looks like it's actually going down. That's a short-term problem. I think we're going to be in a recession, but I don't think it's going to be for two to three years from now. Okay. Yeah. So that's my first comment. Second um, is underwriting. Okay. So the biggest thing right now is that if you look at over the last 50 years, cap rates for commercial real estate, other than the 2008, 9, 10, you know, bubble and, 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 and bust commercial cap rates have been on a, on a downward trend for 50 years. Um, and there's this, um, there's this yield spread between the cost of money and cap rates. And that yield spread is usually about 200 bips, okay? So if your cost of money is 5%, then your cap rate is usually seven. If your cost of money is four, then your cap rate is six, okay? Well, what's happening right now is we're seeing the cost of money skyrocket. And that's happened very quickly because the, Federal Reserve can do quantitative tightening and can raise the Fed funds rate. Quantitative tightening raises the 10-year treasury and that raises the cost of capital. What's happened though is that buyers and sellers of commercial real estate and specifically apartments, that's a much slower change. Everybody's still looking at what was I getting six months ago or nine months ago? So I think my, my advice to people when they look at underwriting is I think we can still pencil that there's going to be very bullish rent bumps. 
We have a housing crisis. There's no affordable housing. We're going to continue to see rent increases that are above the historical average. Okay, we're, we, we can count on that for the next several years. So you can pencil that into your, your, uh, your underwrites. Secondly, what moves the 10-year treasury is not the Fed funds rate. Okay, everybody should understand that. What moves the, the 10-year treasury, which impacts long-term real estate financing, is quantitative tightening. If there's less bonds on the street, if the Fed lets them roll off their balance sheet, then there's less bonds in the street to buy the demand is still there, then the yield goes up, okay? If the, if the yield goes up, then the, the cost of capital is gonna go up. So I look at the 10-year treasury every day. So I've got a pencil now that the treasury is going up, my cost of capital is going up, but cap rates aren't really moving nearly as fast because they lag about 12 to, 18, 12 to 18 months almost. So what you're gonna see is this tightening between Cap rates still staying relatively low, but the cost of capital going up. I wouldn't be surprised at some point, Matt, if the cost of capital is 6% and cap rates are still 6% in some markets. That's going to happen. Um, and so I would just advise people to look. The only way you win in commercial real estate, apartments, self-storage, office, retail, is to take the long approach, right? Is this an asset that you want to own five and seven and 10 years from now or forever. That's the approach I take. One of my favorite books is The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. I take the long approach. I don't want to sell any asset. So if you're in the market of flipping apartment buildings and you're going to trade it every three to five to seven years, I think this is a very volatile time to do that. But if you're in the market to buy and hold and then maybe sell when the time is right, I think that's important because right now you're having to pencil for higher debt, cost of debt, you're having to pencil for still relatively low cap rates. You're having to pencil for uh, rent rates that are going way up. And so those are all things that go into our underwrite. But to me, it all levels out if it's an asset that I want to own long-term because the cost of debt is short-term. Cap rates, short-term. The, the, the rental income rates, that's all short-term. Do I want to own this piece of real estate for the next 20 years? If it does, if I don't want to own that piece of real estate for the long haul, I'm just not going to buy it. I don't even care if it pencils. So do you have a, an expected hold uh, period? So for us, we, we tell our investors 10 years, 10 years. Uh, we're going to buy it. We're going to do, for us, a fairly high amount of CapEx. So we're typically full turning units. Again, we're buying 60s, 70s, 80s vintage con construction. So they haven't really been full hard turned, right? So we're putting in and ripping out the entire unit, the flooring, the cabinets, the bathroom, the kitchen, everything comes out. And we're dropping in eight to $10,000 in a unit. And we're taking rents that could have previously, let's use an example, was $800. And now, two months later, after we buy it, the eviction happens or the move out happens, we renovate it, lease it, and the move-in happens, we might be getting $1,200. So massive $400 rent bump. And then thereafter, we're trying to be relatively conservative, Matt, with maybe a 4% annual increase thereafter. But because we're taking a classic unit to basically brand new construction unit, we're getting massive rent bumps and then we get organic growth thereafter. Nice. Yeah. I mean, if you're spending $8,000 and you're getting a, an extra $400 a month, uh, that's a pretty good return on your CapEx. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we, we've hung our head on that, Matt, frankly, like our we're an apartment investing company. Uh, we have a lot of limited partners, but what makes it all go for us is our construction team. 
That's why we're focused on investing in our backyard. I'm in Cleveland. We invest in Columbus, Cincinnati, Dayton, uh, anything that's really within a four hour drive or less because our construction crews can travel. To me, that was my lesson from COVID. COVID taught me to invest in my own backyard so that I could have a real pulse on what the hell was going on. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I, I know there's there's a lot of, I guess, speculation. You know, a lot. some people prefer uh, only investing locally. Some people prefer to just travel to wherever uh, there are, you know, you know, gr- you know, better pastures, essentially, to graze in. Um, so that that's, makes sense of why you're focusing on your own backyard and, and anywhere that your construction crews can uh, travel to. Right. Yep. To me, that's that's the secret sauce. So when you invest in C-class and B-class assets that are in B-class areas, and you're going to do this massive, what I consider a pretty substantial value add, because when you act, add in the commons and whether we're doing windows, maybe some roofs, maybe some boilers, you know, you're going to end up like one of our latest projects is a 300 unit we bought for 16.3 million. And we have a two and a half million dollar CapEx budget, right? Um, so that's almost 10,000 a unit but we're only going to turn, we're going to full hard turn half the units and we're going to kind of make ready the other half, but it's still almost 10,000 a unit total. That's a lot of cash. It's a lot of CapEx, but we're going to be into that thing for about 19 and a half million. When we're done, it's going to pencil out to be worth about 27 and a half when we're finished. Right. Then you asked me what the whole time was. Our plan then is in about four years to refi, give our investors back all of their principal. Uh, they've earned a pref return for that four years, and then everybody owns equity in that deal in perpetuity, and we plan on holding it for a long, long time to create some long-term income. Oh, it's free money at, at that point, so. Forever passive income, baby. That's what the <laughs> shirt says. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, I mean, cash flow cures all ills. I mean, even if there is a recession, uh, and I, I agree, sooner or later there will be, I I, I see that there, there's a strong economy still right now, but uh, if you have cash flow that can... Uh, continue to keep on, uh, you know, providing you cash flow throughout a downturn. You can hold on to that uh, property indefinitely and, and ride it through to the other side. No doubt, I think, and that's like I said, that's the number one trait, Matt, that I see of really elite entrepreneurs, whether it's in real estate or e-commerce or any business, or you know, somebody that's an eight and nine-figure real estate investor like us. They invest for cash flow. And this is the lesson that I learned as when I did the kind of intro at the beginning of the show. This is the mistake I made when I was younger is I I thought I was investing for cash flow by flipping properties, wholesaling properties. And, you know, we owned a brokerage firm. We were earning, uh, you know, real realtor fees and those kind of things. But it wasn't an asset throwing us off cash flow. That was a business we had to work in that produced cash flow. So it's a difference now. Now we own assets that we just collect the rent, we pay the bills, and it throws us cash flow. And you'll never, never, never go wrong if you can do that and do it as fast as possible. Do it right now. Invest for cash flow right now. Those are the, you know, to kind of be one of those people who's a lifestyle investor who can invest for lifestyle, for freedom, for time freedom. That's what I care about is the time freedom of my life. It's probably what cancer taught me is to invest for time not to just make a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I see wealth as like, how long can you survive without doing any work? You know, if uh, you, you stop working today and then uh, your next paycheck doesn't come and, and like you, you get kicked out of your place, well, you're not very wealthy. But uh, if you can stop working today and the cash flow continues on forever, then you're pretty wealthy. No doubt, no doubt, I love it. 
Uh, so what are some mistakes that you've made along the way? And, and uh, you know, how can our viewers learn from that? Uh, well, look, I think the, the biggest mistake is what I just mentioned was was is is thinking I was building a business that was producing profit, but it wasn't cash flow, passive cash flow. Let's let's be clear. Passive cash flow is what Matt and I are really talking about. That's number one. Um, the second thing is, look, when you're building a business, the and you're bootstrapping it from the beginning. I realized that I tried to keep my expenses down by hiring a lot of people that had a very low salary or a very low cost to the P&L. Today, I have a relatively small staff for having a $300 million portfolio, but I have very expensive, you would say, salary for those people who absolutely kick ass. So everyone talks about, hey, hire A players, hire A players, hire A players. Sure. But- the mistake I made is that I thought I could take a B player or a C player and I could train them to be an A player. I thought I could muscle it. I could fix it. I could train them. And to me, a C player is almost always going to be a C player. If you really train them really hard, maybe they become a B minus. Okay. So instead, the, the way I cured that is I said, I'm only going to hire people for a job that already know the job. I don't want to train anybody on my payroll. I don't want to train people for shit. I want them to know the job and how to do the job before I hire them. So when I brought on my VP of construction, Dave, I didn't try to teach Dave how to do commercial construction. He had 35 years of commercial construction experience and he came with a larger payroll. Okay, so I'm fine with that, but I don't have like, the pains I've had in the past, Matt, like if you're an owner operator, where do you lose money in real estate is in construction risk. Like a contractor screws you and steals money or steals materials or goes too long or is over time or over budget. So the, the, the mistake I made was trying to teach people how to do the job where the way I corrected that was by hiring and interviewing people that already know how to do the job and do it really well. Give you another example, Matt. I tried to start my own property management company. God, what a disaster that was. Um, and because I thought I could take people who didn't know property management and teach them how to do it. Huge mistake. Instead, now we use third-party managers to do the collections and do the leasing and do the you know work orders. And they're good at it. They're already trained on it. They know how to use the software and they've got infrastructure at their company. So we use fairly large regional uh, property managers. I'm not teaching them how to do that job. They come on day one with the experience. That was another mistake I made. Um, the third mistake I would say that I made is, again, as a young entrepreneur, is I thought I could basically muscle the business. And you can muscle a business. I think you can muscle a business to $5 million in revenue. You just work really hard. You work really long hours. Over time, what you realize is that you have to adopt technology and use that as a weapon in your business. If you're the CEO... You have to be able to see inside your company because numbers never lie. So making your team adopt technology and software is hugely important. Um, and so what we say now, Matt, is we, we tell our team, if it's not in the software, it didn't freaking happen. Mm. Okay. 
So they have to update our software programs. Either it's it's at night when they're when they're at home or at the end of their work day. They have to be in our software a minimum of twice a week, making updates to their projects, whether it's cash flow, whether it's property management, whether it's capex, whatever it is. If it's not in the software, it didn't happen before. I used to rely on conversations, text messages, phone calls, meetings to find out what the hell was going on in our company. Now I just log into the software and it's all there. So those are a couple. Those are probably three mistakes. Cash flow, the people, understanding that A players come with bigger payroll and technology. Those are three mistakes that I've kind of course corrected. And that's what allowed us to build this big portfolio. Oh, I love it. And especially that data, like you can easily analyze the history of how it's been and, and uh, what you can do to push it to, to improve it. So with the team, how do you find those A players? Uh, honestly, we've outsourced it for the most part. I, I, I don't have the time for it, nor do I have the skill set to find them. So I bring in headhunters that can bring us lots of talent and, and we pay the headhunter. Uh, a lot of times headhunters will cost, they're pretty freaking expensive. It, like they'll cost anywhere between 15 to 35% of the person's first year guaranteed salary. So if I'm hiring somebody that's going to make 100, 150 grand, that could cost me 15000 to $50,000. But that person is highly vetted with an incredible resume that's been through numerous interviews. And so I know when I offer them, and then I make sure that the, the headhunter also has a uh, basically a, a give back. If that person doesn't survive 90 days or 180 days, that the, the headhunter is going to credit me back their, that, that fee for the next hire. So I've had to use headhunters because I just don't have all of those A players in my own network. Yeah, that makes sense. And and it's uh, a lot less hit or miss. Like if you just put a, a post on Facebook or LinkedIn or something like, you know, hopefully you get somebody good, but uh, you never know. Especially now, I mean, there's 5.2 million jobs out there right now that are not filled. So there's a lot of good talent and that good talent is working. They are working and they're getting paid really well. So if you want to steal an A player from a company, you, you got to have somebody that knows how to play that game. And that's typically a headhunter. I love it. All right. Uh, what are some like a book or two that uh, you've really enjoyed that our uh, listeners might enjoy too? Um, look, man, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a geek for books. I, I, I'm on Audible all the time. I listen to it like all every day when I'm at the gym. And so I'm just going to give you some recent ones that I really love. Uh, Simon Sinek, I think, is is an up and comer, big time. I don't think he gets enough play. I don't think he gets enough. Uh, so the Infinite Game by Simon Sinek, Start with Why by Simon Sinek, those are great. Uh, the Power of One More by Ed Milet is fantastic. Uh, my friend Justin Donald uh, wrote the book Lifestyle Investor. Um, and I would recommend that book to anybody who's more of a limited partner, anybody who wants to just invest, write a check, and get cash flow, with, like, like Matt and I talked about. Um, and we're actually featured in that book. Uh, yeah. The Lifestyle Investor is a New York Times bestseller. Sold over 50,000 copies in less than two years. Uh, Justin's a personal friend of mine. He's been on my podcast and he actually features us in the book. Um, so lifestyle investor, but not because I'm in it, but because I think Justin's done an incredible job of, of kind of showcasing deal flow and different types of deal flow, real estate, e-commerce, life insurance plays, different types, of mobile home parks that limited partners can invest in and how to underwrite that stuff and how to understand what you're investing in and then how to write, write smart checks 
and keep your money out of the stock market. And this goes back to what Matt and I talked about at the beginning about investing in a bond. And that could have been just as easily been a stock example. You get an 8% return on a stock or 10, but you don't have all those things I mentioned, leverage, equity. Uh, Justin does a great job in the lifestyle investor of um, really showcasing different types of deal flow uh, that many people wouldn't think about. So those are, those are a couple there, Matt. Excellent. And have you ever ever read uh, the book, uh, um, Who Not How? Oh, yeah. No doubt. That, That's one of my favorites. So Dan Sullivan, um, actually, Who Not How? Yeah, that's Dan Sullivan. That's, yep. that's Dan Sullivan and his co-author. I couldn't think of his name. So I actually been studying Dan for 20 years. I think he's a freaking genius. Um, and I've adopted most of his entrepreneurial strategies into my life. Um, and Who Not How? Again, you look at, could I have learned commercial construction? Sure, that's the how. But instead of the how, I went after the who, which is my my VP of construction, Dave. And that's made my life so much easier. I sleep better at night because Dave is on my team. So that's a real example of who, not how, for sure. Excellent. It allows you to scale too, to bigger than, like if you tried to do all this stuff yourself, like you wouldn't have the payroll uh, to you know, cost you, but you're not uh, able to do it as well as, as yeah. uh, you know, what these other people can do for you. For sure. And you know, the beautiful thing is you got to just find ways to pay for it. You got to get creative. So Dave's salary is paid for out of the CapEx budget. It's not coming out of my pocket. It's not coming out of the deal. It's coming out of the CapEx budget. So when we submit budgets, to our lenders, and they're giving us money for construction draws, one of the line items is construction salaries. So in the past, I thought, well, I have to hire Dave and pay him out of my profit or out of my pocket. Not doing that at all. The bank is actually happy to reimburse us for the cost of our construction team. We have actually four administrative staff on our construction team. We have an $8 million CapEx budget right now, Matt. It's a massive budget. So we got four people that are not even in construction. They're in the admin side of the construction business, including Dave and uh, the, and the lenders pay for it. They help us offset it because it's coming out of the draw. Excellent. Excellent. So, uh, you know, one thing we ask all of our guests, uh, what are your three pillars of wealth creation? Um, well, look, I, I, I kind of talked about them because they were mistakes that I made, but here's, here's what I would say is, Wealth creation, number one, comes from investing for cash flow now. Now, meaning I write a check for 100 grand. Let's say I get an 8% pref or a 10% pref on that. I can count on that. It's very consistent. And then I take that and I take the eight dollars to $10,000 profit. I still have the equity in the deal. And I can invest the eight dollars to $10,000 in the next deal. So I create a second cash flow from my very first investment. So the first thing is that Wealth creation is created by stacking incomes, income stacking, taking the same dollars and getting multiple paychecks from the same principle. That's number one. Number two, I think that wealth creation happens, Matt. The biggest leverage that any entrepreneur or investor has is themselves. If you only have five grand right now to invest or $10,000 to invest right now, Putting that money back into your own self-development, that's a pillar of wealth creation. If it, You have to reinvest in your own knowledge, your network, the people that you know, what you know. You've got to reinvest money back into yourself. That's the second one. Third one, which I think a lot of people think would be a little bit different, would be that 
Look, the best way to learn and create wealth is to teach. Okay. So I've always adopted for the last 20 years, anything I was learning, I was also going to teach it. Maybe not as good as the guy I'm learning from, or maybe not as fast, or maybe not at the same level, but I've always found myself in the middle. I was not always the professor, but I also wasn't the student. I was in the middle. I was learning and teaching at the same time. So even today, Matt, as we talk, I feel like I'm, even though we own all these apartments, I feel like I'm still learning every day. I'm listening to other people's podcasts. I'm reading other people's books. I'm going to other seminars. I'm listening to Zoom calls, listening to podcasts. So I'm learning, but at the same time, I'm teaching. And that is, to me, a pillar of wealth in that I'm able to not only build my network, build my deal flow, but I'm also, at the same time, I'm sharpening my skills because I want to keep up with the people that are ahead of me. And I want to stay ahead of the people who are behind me. And that's forcing me to level up as, a, as an entrepreneur and as a leader. So that, again, is a little maybe different than what a lot of people think. But I think I have had a lot of success because I'm not just always learning, 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 learning. I'm learning. And then when you teach it to someone else, like you got to make sure you got your crap dialed in if you're going to teach someone else. And that's helped me be really, really good at what we do. Yeah, the fastest way to learn something is to have to teach it. And, uh, you know, all the top performers I've talked to at, at every single level, they're always focused on learning and growing and becoming better versions of themselves. No doubt. And I think, look, if like I'm a volleyball coach, I coach club volleyball and I'm not, I didn't grow up playing volleyball, right? I, I actually played college football. I, I played football, basketball and baseball in high school. I had no volleyball experience at all. But today I love coaching volleyball because I, when I'm in the gym, I'm like a gym rat. I'm, I'm watching the guys that have been around volleyball for 20 years that played it, that coach it, that coach high school, that coach college, that coach club volleyball. I'm watching how they run practice. And then I'm using those skill sets to run a better practice for my own kids that I coach. It's no different about investing or real estate or anything else uh, by watching other really high performers it doesn't mean that you have to just sit and wait. You can teach it to somebody else that's maybe starting from a newbie level. I think that's really important. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to uh, you know, know about you and uh, what you have going on? Uh, look, man, I, I think the last thing I would want to say is, is um, because I'm a pancreatic cancer survivor, right? I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer 11 years ago. I was given about a six to 8% chance of living. I had a massive surgery. My surgeon, Dr. Matthew Walsh, basically saved my life in the operating room. Um, is that there, there is no guarantee of tomorrow or next year. So I look at my life two ways. Number one, I invest for the super long-term, the infinite game. Uh, but I make plans for only the next 12 months. Like I invest for the long-term, assuming that I'm going to own assets forever, but I am looking at growth in the next 12 months. I don't have a 10-year plan. I don't have a five-year plan. I have uh, you know, a, a one-year, here's what we want to get done this year. Um, and I, I think that served me well, Matt, because to know I'm making a purchase today or I'm investing in a business today or a real estate asset today that's going to pay me forever. But to know, like, I've got a very short window of what I want to get done. I'm not giving myself five years to succeed. I'm giving myself 12 months or less to get a whole bunch of stuff done. Um, and at the end of every year, at the end of every quarter, we're going to take inventory of what we've gotten done. 
And we're going to compare that to where we want to be. I think that's very important to invest for the long term, but to have the sense of urgency for the very, very short term, because we just don't know when our number is going to be called. I'm very lucky. Uh, my number almost got called 11 years ago. I was given a second chance. And I think that's crucial to my success today. Well, I'm glad you made it. And those are some powerful words right there. Thanks Excellent. a lot. I appreciate that. So how can I listeners uh, get in touch with you? Oh, uh, yeah. Just go to our main website, freelandventures.com slash passive. Uh, there they can see our portfolio. They can see our deal flow. They can register to be an investor with us if they want. Uh, they can see our bios and all of our, a lot of our uh, YouTube videos, but that's the best place. That's everything we've got is on that main website, freelandventures.com slash passive. Okay. And I'll put that in the show notes so they can easily get in touch with you. Awesome. Appreciate that. Great. Well, thanks so much, Josh. And you have a fantastic rest of your day. Thanks a lot, Matt, for having me on. I really appreciated it. Thanks. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you being a loyal listener. Say, I would love to have you go on to our Facebook page and subscribe. Uh, give us a thumbs up. Go on to iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe. Your rating review just helps us push this out to more and more people and continue to grow our audience and hopefully positively affect a ton of people out there that really need this and, and want this. So uh, the other thing I've got for you is a free ebook on my website. So go on to VentureDProperties.com, VentureDProperties.com and download our free ebook on real estate and on syndication. And I've got some data points in there, some really good stuff for you. So I'd love to have you take a look at that. It's free. I'm not expecting anything from it. Uh, and also look, if you want some help in multifamily, want some help learning, growing, getting your business off the ground, I would love to talk to you about what it would look like uh, to work with me potentially and see if that's a good fit. So you can go to coachwithdex.com and check that out and uh, we can definitely have a, uh, a call. Thanks a lot for listening. You make it a fantastic rest of the day. I'll catch you on the next episode.